You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Julie Broadway, president at the American Horse Council. And I'm Megan Arsman, marketing and communications specialist at the American Horse Council. And you are listening to the special monthly American Horse Council episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for August 1st, 2023. Good morning, horse world. It's time to hear from the American Horse Council in this monthly episode of Horses in the Morning. Thank you for tuning in this morning. We're excited to have you for this fourth episode. I can't believe, Megan, that we're already at the fourth episode. I know, and it's even harder to believe that it's already August, Julie, unless you step outside and get blasted like by the heat like I am, because this week is a hot one here in Indiana. How has summer been treating you in Virginia? Well, it's been a little wet and rainy here, but this week we are going to be like everybody else around the country. We're going to have these really outrageous temperatures. So all my horse friends out there, take good care. Take good care of your animals. Take good care of yourself. Put on your sunscreen. Get Stay hydrated. You know, all those things because it's going to be unbearable. Uh, I think uh, they're telling us uh, Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, something like that in the triple digits. Definitely. We finished up our 4-H County Fair this past week, so we're glad to have that out of the way and everything. But speaking of the weather, you know, it makes you think about the environment and climate change and how much that is affecting how our how our seasons are going. You know, we're having extremes from one end to the other, or for us, we haven't really had a very snowy winters lately they've been wet but they've been pretty warm and most times you don't complain about that kind of thing but it's also a little scary and it makes you takes a moment for you to think about what's going on with the environment and climate change and i think that is the perfect reason for our episode today when we're going to talk about horses and the environment with a few great guests that i'm excited to talk to Yeah. And, you know, at our conference this year, we had a panel discussion on environmental sustainability and climate change. We heard from Scott Evans of Green is the New Blue about ways to be good stewards uh, when you're at uh, shows or in competitions. We heard from Megan Fellows with Carbon Hoofprints talking about some work she's doing and thinking about our, our carbon footprint as as horse people. Uh, and the two young ladies you're going to hear from today were like the, the big success story at the conference mm-hmm. because we had invited Colorado State University's capstone class. Uh, we challenged them to come to us with a presentation about some things that they had on their mind as it related to the environment and, and climate change. So with that, Megan, um, I think we're ready to start our next segment. Right. Well, let's get to it. Here's a crazy fact for you, Julie. Did you know that two horses can generate enough manure to power a single family household for one year? Oh my gosh. Just imagine what we with 7.2 million horses in the U.S. could do. Wow. That's a fascinating fact. Exactly. And that was just one of the eye-opening facts that these two young ladies shared with us during the 2023 American Horse Council's National Issues Forum in Denver, Colorado back in June. 
Vanessa Roy and Jessica Stock are equine science students at Colorado State University, and they presented their capstone project to a room full of horse industry leaders that made us all shake our heads. Vanessa Roy is a Finnish American equine science student at Colorado State University who is eagerly looking forward to graduating in December. You're halfway there. While at CSU, she says that she has had an incredible opportunity to explore and learn about the equine industry, and one of the highlights of her journey has been participating in the horse judging team, which has helped her develop a deep appreciation for Arabian and stock horses while gaining valuable insights from industry leaders. Beyond her involvement in horse judging, she competes in dressage, a discipline that she says has captured her heart, and she thoroughly enjoys its challenges and rewards. Jessica Stock is a senior completing her bachelor's degree in equine sciences at Colorado State University. Before returning to college as a non-traditional student, Jessica worked in retail management for Costco Wholesale. She found a renewed passion for horses in the early COVID years, which led her led to her enrollment in CSU's program. Since starting at CSU, Jessica was elected as a board secretary of the Clefalia Icelandic Horse Club and had the pleasure of presenting about environmental sustainability at the American Horse Council's 2023 annual conference. She's truly excited to see where her passion for horses and agricultural innovation takes her. And we are very excited to have you two ladies on the podcast with us. Welcome, Vanessa and Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. We're so excited to have you guys back. You were such a big hit at the conference. And I've been talking on a lot of different uh, um, webinars and things and telling everybody how entertaining and how everybody was so impressed with the work you did. Why don't you tell us what gave you the idea to do a project on environmental sustainability uh, in the horse world? So this this was a project for our capstone class, which was taught by Mr. Huffines um, that focused on current issues in the equine industry. Both Scott Evans and you, Julie Broadway, had come to our class and spoke to us um, about things that were going on in the equine industry. And that really sparked our interest and passion for the environmental sustainability within the equine industry. Um, So a part of our class assignment for that capstone was to choose a topic that we found valuable and interesting. So the both of us chose this topic and It was actually a much larger presentation than what we brought forward to the conference. Well, I I know our listeners would love to hear the whole thing, but we got, again, a little bit of a limited window today. So that's that's really great. I'm, I'm really impressed. And, you know, people at the conference heard me say that this has become a topic that's really near and dear to my, my heart and the staff's heart because we're often more often working in the agricultural space and with other livestock species where environmental issues are right at the forefront. So we really want to get in on the front of this as the horse industry and think about this. So we really were excited about the presentation you gave. Megan, you got a follow-up question. Yeah, I was just going to say, I want to hear, um, you know, I want to hear some of, some of your studies that you guys found. And of course, you provided a PDF of your presentation. So we're going to make sure that we can have that available in our show notes so everybody can take a look at what you guys presented. But yeah, why don't you, Jessica and Vanessa, share some of the studies and what you guys found and some of the enlightened things that we that we all heard about. 
So most of our information came from primary sources, um, like the Tulsa State Fairground and the uh, Helsinki International Horse Show. However, we did utilize numbers and facts that were given to us um, to find out how like the Helsinki horse show model could be implemented in the United States um, and kind of what that would look like, what the potentials could be. Um, in addition, we looked at the proposed impact of biogas systems, which is what Helsinki is using. Um, and we found this information from the American Biogas Council. And they estimate that 103 trillion kilowatts uh, hours of electricity could be generated each year from using these biogas systems. So it's it's pretty profound number. How did you guys find out about what the Helsinki um, Horse Center was doing? So I'll turn this over to Vanessa. Um, because I have had the privilege to live in Helsinki. I have actually gone to the event and I had read about it already when they initially started this process. Um, and then when we had the possibility to do a presentation on this, I found it very important to bring this information forward to even just our class um, and spread that information. So I just have to ask this question since you've been there and you've seen it up front. What was the reaction from the horse industry in that? in that community, in that area, what did they think about this? Did they say, oh, this is really cool. Wow. Look how we can, you know, contribute back to society, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or did they say, you're going to build a what in my backyard? <laughs> <laughs> no, there was actually everybody that I've spoken to in the, e like, in the equine community in Finland were super excited about this. And even before this was being put out to news outlets in Finland, it was very hush-hush, the project at first. And I actually was going on a barn tour. And this was one of the first initial barns that was going to work with um, Fordham Horsepower, which is the energy company that was working with Helsinki International Horse Show. Um, and they were selecting barns who would be open-minded to this process. And everybody was very excited about it, excited about this new innovation that hadn't been done before. So Vanessa and Jessica, I'm I'm a really, you know, sort of logistics, practical, down-to-earth kind of person. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, okay, the horses are in stalls and we've got to pick the poop and we've got to put the poop somewhere in order to convert it into, into this Biogas, is that the right phrase? How does that process work? So um, Fordham provides those barns, those stables, the horse shows, provides them with a specific sustainable wood shavings that is locally sourced. Um, and then they deliver that to the stables. They also will pick up the manure from the stables, barns, um, and then they take it back to the power plant where the manure is put into the digester, and then that is converted into uh, usable energy, which is then sent back to the national power grid, and it's utilized by the local community. Oh, that is, that's really cool. So quick side note, Megan knows this about me. I spent 20 years working for a major electric utility before I went into the 
into the nonprofit world. So I know all about how fossil fuels and hydropower and nuclear energy and all that stuff works. This is fascinating to me. I'm just like, okay, I can so see how this is happening. I, I can picture it in my in my head, Megan. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really, really interesting. And it really just kind of, you know, I sit there and look at our manure pile at our barn and think, hmm, that could just, how could that power our own barn in our house? So ladies, what could the Helsinki model mean for horse venues in the United States, such as the Tulsa State Fairgrounds, which is a beautiful fairgrounds in Oklahoma? So to consider how this could be utilized in the United States, um, we, as we discussed, we um, contacted the Tulsa State Fairgrounds and Brandy Herndon uh, was amazing and she was super helpful to us. She she shared some specific um, facility numbers, which allowed us to roughly calculate what it would look like in the U.S. So what we found um, is that in all of the shows um, combined at the fairgrounds, they produce 153 tons of manure over that entire year. Um, that in turn, to compare to the Helsinki numbers, that could produce a an upwards of 200 megawatts of electricity, um, which would uh, provide power and heat to an estimated 22 households annual annually. That may not sound like a lot, but it's important to consider this is just one horse show in the entire um, entire country. So it's it's big. You know, we could really do a lot with it. And the biogas systems are already existing in the United States. So we do have some of that infrastructure already there. And that was going to be one of my questions is if if this is something that's already kind of in place in the United States. And and also then it seems like it would just be a matter of of um schematics between the between the facilities correct yeah i completely agree and they um what they have found what the american um biogas council has found is that it's the emissions reduction equivalent of removing 117 million passenger vehicles from the road so it's not just you know producing el electricity it's a huge environmental impact um just to you know, kind of equal out. Um, and then the economic impact, they estimate that 45 billion in capital would be created just from the construction activity alone, just to um, convert these biogas systems to be fully, fully utilized as they are not being fully utilized yet. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking of all the people that I need, need to introduce you guys to so we can float this idea. I mean, it just so seems to me we just have to get the right partners together. Uh, and I'm thinking about all the members of the League of Ag and Equine Centers that all have these venues and these facilities. And I'm thinking about people that I know from electric co-ops and other groups that are out there that are very energy conscious. Hey, Elon Musk might be interested in this. Who knows? But it just <laughs> is fascinating if we could get the right people together. We could create an entire model for this thing. Very much so. I think there's a lot that we're that Europe is doing that we can look at and, you know, find great ways to implement it in our country. We have a huge country. There's a lot of ag here. You know, there's a lot of potential. So, Vanessa, tell us a little bit about um, 
what you guys, the numbers you found from the American Biogas Council and what the what kind of impacts that would be for the United States if we did something like this? It it would just it would be phenomenal. Um just thinking about how those two horses can provide enough energy for a single family household for a full year is if you think about that on a large scale, it could even help with rural communities who may lose power because of like storms that hit and all of these natural disasters that we see that have increased over the years how how could we impact those communities and how could it aid them to have a source of energy? I think that would also be an interesting focal point. So I'm just doing the math in my head. 7.2 million horses in the U.S. divide by two. So we could basically electrify 3,600,000 houses a year with horse manure you guys are nodding yes and i'm like oh my gosh <laughs> that's just horses you know there's a lot of other livestock that you know mm-hmm. their, their waste can also go into the digesters as well so the potential is just it's just incredible exactly so what are your goals with this study and project now that you've completed it and you presented it to us in a remarkable fashion in june where do you see things going now or what are you guys hoping to do now? I know Julie's kind of sparked some excitement for you and, and trying to get some connections. Well, we, I, I'm speaking for the both of us, but both of us want to keep talking to industry leaders and keep this conversation going. Um, even regarding other sustainable practices that we could be implementing in the equine industry, there's so much that can be improved upon. Personally, I would love to find a way to configure a system that individual people could have a way of utilizing manure to energy. Um, Like I said, it would be beneficial for people who live in rural areas that may suffer from power cuts and may have to wait longer to get assistance to restore that power. Um, I think the generation of manure to energy will be a long-term goal and will take corporate like people to come together and from different sectors to get this accomplished. It's we need power companies, we need larger facilities, even individuals to show interest in this and work together to get this accomplished because I think the benefits will be outstanding and will aid not only the economy, but also reduce reducing emissions and just being more sustainable and more forward thinking. Oh, for sure. For sure. And we will have all the information that we can for people to contact you in our show notes, as well as the PDF that you guys sent of your presentation to us. So thank you so much, Vanessa and Jessica. So thank my, you for having us. My follow-up question is, okay, so Vanessa, you're going to graduate in December? Correct. What, what's, the, what's the next step for you? Is, is it, are you going to go to graduate school? Are you thinking of a, a next uh, career move? And the same question for you, Jessica. Um, well, I'm hoping to land a job 
and (laughs) (laughs) um, land a job and hopefully go to grad school in the fall. But I really want to stay present in these discussions and networking opportunities with leaders in the industry who want to be forward thinking and want to get this done. I I want to push and be better and have a voice in this industry. It's it's a wonderful community. And I think a lot can be done because I feel like horse people are very determined to get things done when they set their mind on it. Oh, you mean more stubborn? <laughs> <laughs> Just slightly. <laughs> My goal um, is definitely to continue making connections and networking with other equine professionals who are passionate about environmental sustainability. Um, I, as Vanessa stated, you know, we're really looking to connect with people and just see this project through. Um, I'm considering graduate school um, next fall with the potentially at the CSU Spur campus, which is quite the um, innovator in agribusiness and in food innovation. So I'm really excited about that. I spoke with uh, Dr. Graf uh, that was also a presenter at the American Horse Council. Um, So excited to see where that goes. And um, I'm just, I love the energy that's behind this project. Um, I don't think Vanessa and I could have ever um, expected so much support and interest. And I'm just really excited to see where this can go, especially, you know, just the possibilities to help those rural communities and, you know, any under-resourced areas, you know, it's it's very exciting. And I'm definitely excited to hear the, of uh, some new connections on your end, Julie, so... So one thing I do want you guys to put on your radar and listeners too, uh, the American Horse Council um, holds an annual congressional fly-in. That means we invite people to come to D.C. We make appointments up on the hill and go into offices. So we haven't picked exact dates, but it's usually in October sometime. And I want you guys to sort of see if that fits into your schedule, because I can certainly see we making arrangements to go into some congressional offices and sort of pitch this idea and see what ideas we, uh, what kind of reaction we get. Um, This year is a farm bill year. So there's lots of conversations about funding for different programs. And this might be something that we could take to the chair um, for the Senate and um, House Ag Committee um, who are working on the farm bill and say, maybe not in this farm bill, but could we get something sort of moving and sort of begin that dialogue? Um, We're really lucky. We have a congressional horse caucus up on the Hill and those are um, congressional members that have large, significant horse populations in their state, or they themselves have a passion about horses. So they're a great audience too. So we, I've got a bunch of ideas that I'll, kind of percolate and be back around with you guys on. That's amazing. amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you you so much. This, (laughs) this is incredible. I, I cannot find the words to even (laughs) explain my gratitude. Agreed. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you both. Or thank you all. I should say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you ladies so much. Thank you for the work and effort that you put into it. And and the excitement that, you know, you said is generating, it, it comes from you, definitely. And like we said in one of our last podcasts, the youth are our future, and you guys are definitely taking a big step in it. So thank you very much for joining us. Best of luck as the fall semester starts to get going here in a few weeks. And we look forward to hearing more from you down the road. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. It's time. 
the 2023 Equine Economic Impact Study is now live. Help the horse industry by doing your part in participating. Help fight for green space and public lands. Help pinpoint areas of growth in the industry to foster while identifying the gaps that need attention. Help strengthen and protect America's horse industry for years to come. Participate now in the 2023 American Horse Council's Economic Impact Study through September 29th. So listeners, we are back for the next segment of our episode today, and we're so excited to have Emily Stearns with us. Emily currently is the Health, Welfare, and Regulatory Affairs Liaison for the American Horse Council. But how we met Emily was she originally managed our Equine Welfare Data Collective, which is a program under the United Horse Coalition and the American Horse Council Foundation. Um, She completed her Master's of Science in Equine Science uh, by research um, at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. So I'm already envious because she's been to Scotland. Um, She is a self-admitted horse girl who grew up eventing in Massachusetts. Her experiences include various equine research projects, managing large and small horse farms, animal care, adoption counseling at an animal rescue, and teaching as an adjunct professor at the University of New Hampshire and post-university in equine programs. In her free time, she enjoys riding, skiing, traveling, and hiking with her dogs. Now, this is not on my script, but I can tell you, Emily has a little menagerie at home with all kinds of animals. So she's a really big animal <laughs> lover. We love to hear on our staff meetings stories about what's going on on the farm. Um, and I can also say Emily has been invited to be a uh, grant reviewer. Um, for Morris Animal Foundation and works with a number of other organizations. And we're really delighted to have her as part of our staff. She's been in this role of um, health, welfare, and regulatory affairs for about six or so months now. Um, So, Emily, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some work that you've been doing specifically in the environmental sustainability uh, area. So I'm going to let Megan kick us off with the first question. Yeah, so Emily, we were talking about different ways that we could kind of educate horse owners and a little bit more about what's going on because, you know, things going on right now is more than just what's in our little bubble of our barn or or at our horse shows. And, and uh, you wrote a piece about how the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA and the horse industry needs to work together. And that was published on PollockReport.com last month. Can you give us a brief synopsis as to the importance of the horse industry working with the EPA and what you've seen so far in your position? Yeah, sure. So we have a lot of regulatory efforts that kind of work hand in hand with rulemaking that comes out of the EPA. And a lot of the things we see are things geared towards the larger agricultural sector, Um, And it's important on our end to help educate and work with the EPA to understand how rulemaking that comes out of them affects the horse industry in particular. So all kinds of different regulations that might make sense for things like cows and turkeys and chickens that might not make sense related to our own husbandry practices for horses um, that all relate to overall protecting the environment, but making sure everything kind of goes hand in hand. 
Yeah. And I think it's, it's important for a lot of people realize that we push a lot to make sure that the horse industry is counted as part of the agricultural, um, landscape and, and all the different regular regulations that are going on. Um, now whenever you talk, Julie, you got a question? I do. So Emily, you know, most recently when I think about the EPA, I think about things that have to do with say, mm, uh, rodenticides or pyrethins. Talk a minute about both of those because those are issues that they're looking at, as you said, from the larger point of view, but have very specific implications for the horse industry. Yeah. So this is something that I think a lot of us in the horse world and outside the horse world have a lot of very similar feelings on. So, you know, overuse of things like rat poison is bad, right? We don't want to be impacting species that aren't the target species. We don't want to be impacting protected species. Um, And the same goes for pyrethrins, which are in fly spray. Um, And the issue with pyrethrins is there was concern about human impact and the people using fly repellents that have pyrethrins in them. And every 15 years or so, the EPA reviews the impact of different rodenticides and different uh, insecticides like pyrethrins and considers how they should be regulated. And most recently, things like rodenticides, as they come into being rescheduled, will have a very, very narrow, limited scope of use. So anyone who wants to use over five pounds of most uh, rodenticide baits or even one pound of some really heavily rescheduled items would need to be licensed. Um, And for pyrethrins, they were looking at banning the use of pyrethrins altogether. So a lot of fly sprays you would no longer be able to access. And working with the EPA to educate them, we help them understand how we use rodenticides really specifically. Um, In the horse world, you know, some of us use rat bait, yes, but a lot of us are relying on cats and rat birth control methods, which are kind of new to the market. Um, And that the groups using these large amounts of rodenticides are doing it for safety purposes for issues like in Colorado with prairie dog holes out in um, pastures, uh, for botulism prevention, for hay balers who are trying to limit finding small animals in hay bales that can cause botulism, uh, and for other things. So helping the EPA to understand how we're actually using these items is really important. Great. Thank you. I guess I should add, if somebody out there listening today has got a, a strong opinion about uh, some of the things that we're talking about, you should reach out to Emily and we'll put her email address out there for you because we love to hear from the general horse community um, about their thoughts on some of these challenges. Right, exactly. And Emily, when you're talking about like the fly sprays and everything, uh, you're also kind of talking about those systems in the barns that a lot of the larger barns are starting to employ now for for fly spray systems. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And we were able to show, um, previous to me coming on board, but we submitted comments on the pyrethrin issue to show that the way horse people are using pyrethrins in hand sprayers uh, and the way horse people are using uh, the aerosolized sprayers, kind of barn mounted ones, 
isn't the risk that they're associating with other agricultural uses. So we're hoping to get an exemption for uses that we see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and that's really important, especially when you're thinking about trying to for disease control and having to spray for, you know, using fly spray to try to, you know, eliminate the mosquitoes and everything and West Nile virus and VEEEEE and all the E's, all the E's, all the E's, all the, all those diseases that are spread from, from insects and everything. So yeah, it's a really important thing. And it's, and it's really important for us to keep, you know, bobbing our heads up and being like, Hey, don't forget about us. Don't forget about us. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And especially talking about the flies Um, And that kind of hot word vectors. So as we see impacts in climate change, we see vector spread. So things that spread diseases are starting to kind of go outside their typical regions. So the rodenticides and the fly sprays are really important to help control that. Yep. And that all goes back to the whole environment thing and climate change and everything else that, that we've been talking about. So really, definitely really important. So, Emily, we talked with the previous um, guest a little bit about horse manure and thinking about uh, climate change and mosquitoes and water and all the things that go into that. Um, I know that there's been a lot of conversation about what are called CAFOs. Talk a little bit about what CAFOs are and how this affects the horse industry and farm owners. Yeah, so CAFOs are also known as concentrated animal feeding operations. And these are large farms, or for us would also be inclusive of racetracks or showgrounds that are permitted through something called the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System. And this is a permitting program that's also through the EPA. And they basically look at these large farms that have 100, 300, 500 or more horses within housed within a 45 day period or more and look at the runoff coming from water discharge and how that gets into other waterways. And CAFO permitting really impacts the kind of wastewater discharge and drainage flow that you need to manage. So for instance, some of the horse facilities we have that are CAFOs, have needed to install really intense underground drains and holding tanks to help kind of manage runoff to be in compliance with CAFO permitting. That's good. I know know for me, especially when listening to you talk, it's all very interesting. And then you kind of wonder like what all of this means for the average horse owner. And, And I think that you're doing a great job of explaining how a lot of this means, you know, even for the person that owns one horse or two horses in their backyard and, you know, up all the way up to, you know, those hundred, hundred horse barns, professional horse barns. Emily, talk a minute, because I know that in my tenure at the horse council, we've had two facilities that got, um, what's the right word? I don't want to find or, 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 or got caught up in a CAFO case. Um, and, I think one of them actually closed mm-hmm. because they couldn't afford to remediate what was needed. And one of them actually did remediate, but spent millions, if not billions. Talk about those two cases so that it gives the listeners a, a sense of, you know, what, what could be the potential for this thing. 
Yeah. And this is something where having an, an open discussion with EPA is really important too, as we see rulemaking come in and helping the EPA understand how horse husbandry works um, and how we care for our horses and manage manure. So these facilities were located in an area that is has, you know, the general population very concerned about environmental impact. And this is something we all need to be worried about in general, right? How the horse industry is impacting the environment and making sure we're good stewards of the environment. But these facilities had been not previously permitted or identified as needing to be permitted as a CAFO through the NPDES. And what ended up happening was private environmental groups found out who they were, what their facilities and operations were, and decided they needed to kind of take charge in telling the NPDS to uh, regulate and permit these facilities. And remediation, like you said, can be very, very expensive. Um, so we are working to educate our members on the importance of making sure you are already compliant if you're not aware of what the compliance needs in your state are, because these regulations are very state-based and can vary state to state. And then also making sure that you are keeping an open discussion with your local environmental departments and that we're working hard to help educate the EPA on why we differ, why the horse industry differs from kind of generalized agriculture and feedlots. And, you know, in our mind, it's easy to see why a racetrack backstretch is much different from a beef cattle feeding operation feedlot, but it's harder to kind of explain that to the EPA. They just see pounds of manure and, and kind of call it at that. Thanks. I, pre I really appreciate that. Uh, Megan, did you have any more follow-up questions for Emily? I know we're getting short on time for this segment, but I did want to say um, to the listeners, um, I've challenged Emily to uh, create an entire webinar sometime this fall that's <laughs> all about CAFOs uh, and explaining what CAFOs are and what you need to be aware of so that you are being proactive in this. So look for some some news about that coming up. For sure. No, thank you so much, Emily. I appreciate you always being willing to share your insights and share your knowledge with us. And hopefully this kind of helps um, open the eyes of horse owners about what's going on right now in in uh, our legislatures and the different things of trying to work together with EPA. So thank you. You're welcome. So listeners, we're down to the tail end of this episode, but I got a couple of important things that I want to share with you. You heard me talk earlier about 7.2 million horses in the U.S. Well, that's a figure that we got from the 2017 National Economic Impact Study. It told us that the horse industry in the U.S. contributed $122 billion annually to the gross domestic product, uh, to the to the economy, um, and 7.2 million horses. We had a, over a million jobs. Uh, and there are about 2 million horse owners in the U.S. Well, 2023, five years later, we're doing a new economic impact study. And I'm really excited about this. We released the horse owner survey and the supplier survey the 1st of April, and they'll run to the end of September. So far, we've had about 12,000 responses uh, to the survey. So we're really excited about that. 
But we also do a lot of what I call specialty surveys. So we delve down into some sectors that are a little unique. And examples are um, equine-assisted services and therapy centers, uh, carriage operators, um, show organizers, uh, mounted units like mounted police units or other types of mounted units. Um, We'll be doing some work with the Polo Association. uh, the, the list just goes on and on. There's just so many little sub-segments to, to our industry that we have to look for unique ways to get at all the data points uh, that are out there. Um, another thing we're doing this time with the survey is we're really targeting to try to reach some uh, communities that we didn't reach last time. So we're going after Native American uh, participants. We're going after Amish and Mennonites and some others that are out there that we really want to hear from. Uh, and just looking under every possible rock to see where all uh, our stretch might be, how how broad and how deep uh, our industry goes. Um, the final results of the study will be out in, uh, I'm hoping, November, Megan. That's sort mm-hmm. of my target. Um, so we'll see how, how this thing all comes together. Uh, but if you haven't participated in the survey, please, please do so. We really want to hear from you. These numbers are so important. We use this data when we go up um, on the Hill in Washington into congressional offices to talk about our industry and the implications of our industry. Um, we also use them for all kinds of state legislation or local zoning. Um, they're used for all kinds of interesting uh, facts and figures. I've got some groups that use the data to help them when they do grant writing or funding requests. So there's just endless uses for the information, but we have to have data in order to to do it. So that's, I really want to encourage everybody, take the time. Uh, It's not a long survey, but take the time to to do the survey. We would really appreciate it. So this does definitely does differ from the USDA ag survey because it, what we're doing with the economic impact survey is we're trying to reach every single horse owner, whether you own one horse or two, even donkeys, miniature horses and ponies, and trying to get all those horse owners from one to 20 to 100 that, you know, to make sure that they have their um, say in the different things and in showing how much you know they make an impact, whereas the USDA survey doesn't count those single or smaller barns, correct, Julie? Yeah, so the USDA survey has a very specific definition about how much revenue a facility has to generate to be included. Um, so their number is closer to like they think the U.S. has 2.8 million horses in it. And of course, mm-hmm. we say there's 7.2. So you see there's a big gap there. Um, so it's really important that ours is as comprehensive as we can be because we turn around and use those numbers to try to justify some of the things that we need from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, like research or or like uh, disease mitigation t- technologies or strategies, those kinds of things. So we, we need we need people to really be mindful of the fact that this is this is the most comprehensive survey done in the industry. There's lots and lots of surveys and they all have different parameters and mm-hmm. different uh desired uh you know final products uh, but ours is supposed to be uh and we believe to be um the most comprehensive and the and the and the widest deepest. It, exactly, exactly. And 
um, for sure. And you guys can go to the American Horse Council's website. It's horsecouncil.org. And we have it right there as you scroll down where it says it's time for the 2023 National Economic Impact Study. We are, um, there has been talk about trying to push for a horse census. So you might see some social media from us with hashtag every horse counts. And all, and it's just kind of one of those ways that we're just trying to help promote and get better. And, you know, we're keeping an update. We're showing what states, how many participants are from what states and try to see uh, where everybody, where everybody stands. So if you want to get, you know, a little competitive and if you have friends in Illinois and you're in Indiana or you have friends in Texas and, and uh, in Kentucky, it's really interesting to see who really does maybe have more horses in the state. So definitely take a little bit of time, spread the word, and uh, you can definitely contact us if you have any questions or you want to help promote the study. It'd be great. So we're just going to sort of wrap up now, uh, and we want to thank everybody for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about the Colorado State University capstone project that they did, uh, take a look at the links on the show notes, or you can look them up online. We we really think this is a really cool little program project thing that, the, that they're doing there over there. Um, if you're interested in staying up to date on the EPA regulations, what's going on that's affecting the horse industry, uh, join the American Horse Council, uh, subscribe to our monthly newsletter, uh, which shares all our latest, latest uh, legislative uh, notes, what's happening um, with the federal, state, and all the regulatory things. Um, that's just great information that is really um, very useful for any horse owner. Uh, we'd encourage you to follow us on social media. We love it when people follow us. Doesn't cost you a dime to like <laughs> us and love us on social media. Uh, and looking to become an, a member to help support um, the industry um, and ensure that we have an industry uh, going forward. Uh, Megan, close us out. Yeah, you can subscribe to the Horses in the Morning on any podcast player and find all the shows on the Horse Radio Network, including ours, on horseradionetwork.com. And as we always like to say, we are hashtag, hashtag here, here for horses. For horses. <laughs>